0: What's up, 5th and Long fans? Welcome back to the show. Happy 2024 to you as well. Got a lot of exciting content on the way for you this year. We're going to finally get into some more sports besides football, talk a lot of basketball, some baseball, some hockey as well. Uh, We've got the Olympics in 2024 as well, something I'm looking forward to down the road. But right now, this is the best time of year for football. Championship season at the collegiate level. The playoffs are almost here in the NFL this is what Paul and I have kind of been looking forward to for the most part this fall and this winter. So really excited to see how some things play out. This episode, we're gonna be talking some Cleveland Brown stuff with their second playoff appearance in the last 30 years. We also have some college football talk, recapping the semifinals, previewing the national championship game. Tune in to us on the socials, Fifth and Long on Twitter, Fifth and Long Pod on Instagram and YouTube, and most importantly enjoy the show all right fifth and long fans welcome back to the pod We've got a special guest today john Coxis. Uh, the voice of the Columbia Fireflies minor league baseball team in Columbia, South Carolina, the home of yours truly. Uh, John is also a diehard Cleveland sports fan. He's from Cleveland, if I'm not mistaken, or, or thereabouts, right?
1: Yeah, about 15 minutes outside the city.
0: Okay, cool. And and if I'm not mistaken, you were actually in Cleveland over the holidays, right?
1: Yes, sir. I made sure I could stick along for that Browns Jets game. And the next morning I drove out to Columbia. <laughs>
0: Were you actually in person
1: at the game? No, no. I was with a a bunch of family members, and we were just all watching, cheering along. Sometimes I feel like that, like, intimate gathering of, like, 15, 20 people is just as fun as going out to a stadium and stuff, especially when you don't, you know, because I'm 700 miles away, you don't get to see the family so much. But, uh, I mean, I saw some of the the videos and the photos of uh, the bridge going to the Muni lot and stuff online. It was mayhem downtown, so.
0: Yeah, let's get right into that, because obviously the Browns now have clinched a playoff berth. They're second in the last, what, 20, 30 years, something along
1: those lines. Yeah, you could phrase it like that, right? (laughs) It was uh, this year and then 2020, and then the last time before 2020 was 2002. So, yeah, it's one way to say it is it's the second in the last 20 years. It's also the second in the last three years.
0: And that 2020 season, Baker Mayfield was still the quarterback then. Uh, that was an AFC championship game run, if I'm not mistaken, right? And it fell just a little bit short in Kansas City, I believe.
1: Uh, I think it was the second round. So as they beat Pittsburgh, like they shellacked them by like 20 or something in the, the wild card game. And I think it was the next week. It was a, a one possession game against Kansas City. And, you know, there was the fumble at the goal line after the helmet to helmet contact that everyone always shows on the, I think I saw it during the Jets game, like three times they brought up that Kansas City game. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was a close game. and It was, you know, you go to the AFC Championship game. I can't remember who Kansas City played that year, but it was like a rollover game at that point. And then the Super Bowl was another real game.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm looking at the box score of that game now. 22-17 Chiefs over the Browns. A one-possession game. Brutal end of the season. Baker Mayfield actually had 467 passing yards uh in the playoffs for touchdowns as well so it's he
1: showed up yeah that was but. the thing is possible game that was uh Patrick Mahomes goes out with like a sprained angle or something in the second or third quarter and then Hennessy comes in and Hennessy pioneered the game-winning drive from that he scores a touchdown with like three minutes left in the game or something
0: yeah I remember that he had that diving touchdown kind of near the pylon where he got nailed and then everybody thought he was hurt
1: right yeah, absolutely. And they were like, well, what do we do? Do we throw a punter? In? I think it was Britton Colquitt at that point.
0: I think you're right. I think you're right. I remember that game was on CBS, four o'clock window, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, yep. 37-20, the final score, the Browns beating the New York Jets in Cleveland. What's the buzz like in the city around this team? Obviously, Cleveland. I mean, the Indians had the World Series run. LeBron obviously had his stretch of of runs to the finals as well. But since then, Cleveland hasn't had a ton of sports things happening, I feel like, or or no no successes quite like this. So put me in the shoes of a Cleveland Browns fan, a Clevelandite, however you want to say it, and just talk to me about how the city is embracing this team and, and what the vibe is like around town.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the Guardians, Indians, however you want to look at it, they've been so good for so long where it was, I think it was two years ago it's the first time they missed the playoffs since like 2013 or something. So for a while it was just, hey, consistently this is going to be a playoff team. But after 2016, there were no deep playoff runs. It was you lose to the Yankees in the first or the second round or you lose to the Astros in the first or the second round. That's kind of how uh, the the Tribe have played since 2017. Then, Obviously, the last two years were so polar opposite. You know, you had the uh, wild card team that was the youngest team in baseball beat. Uh, I believe they knocked off Seattle, and then they played New York that next round in this last year. I mean, the pitching staff just got beat up early, and, and they were bad. So that was kind of the one team Cleveland could hang their hat on. Uh, the Cavs are, again, really young, same fit as the Guardians. Last year, they made the playoffs for the first time without LeBron since, I don't know, I think Brad Daugherty was still on the team, and Mark Price, you know, the the old NBA Jam teams of the 90s. Um, so, you know, it, those two teams kind of are, are giving you a little bit of hope, but Cleveland is such a football blue-collar town. You know, as much as anyone will tell you, man, we love the Guardians, oh, man, we love the Cavs, like when the Browns do well, I mean when the Browns are 0-16, they're still selling out games, right? You don't see progressive fields sold out on a Tuesday in July, uh, even when the team's doing super well after that 90s run, you haven't seen it. And then, uh, I mean, when the Cavs are bad, there's 3,000 people in that stadium uh, at the Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. But when uh, when the Browns are bad, they're still supported. And when they're good, man, it's crazy. And I think so many people, particularly early in the season, wanted to beat on Kevin Stefanski. They're like, man, this guy sucks. I can't tell you how many Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. You know, social media from people in high school, social media from people back home saying Stefanski's the worst coach ever. Um, You know, you have Chubb go out week two. You've got Miles Garrett beat up. You've got Anthony Walker beat up. Amari Cooper beat up, and Deshaun Watson's missing six games. When he's playing, you're getting wins, but it's not because Deshaun Watson's playing well, right? He's got one 300 yard game in 12 games, Uh, and then this guy named Joe Flacco comes in, and I think people are starting to believe anything is possible. I mean, he's four and one. He's throwing 300 some yards a game. his second game, he had the most yards since, like, 2021. Jacoby Brissett had a 350-yard game against Indianapolis. And it's kind of crazy to think about it, but he's now done that four straight games, right? The Rams game is the only game that he has thrown for less than 300 yards. And, yeah, he's making a share of mistakes, but you really, with that defense, only need a game manager. And I think people are starting to see, hey, Joe Blackwell could be our Trent Dilfer for the 2003 Ravens Super Bowl ring. Um, it just depends on if this defense can stay healthy. And I would even say
0: Trent Dilfer might be t- doing Joe a little bit of a disservice. You, you highlighted four straight games with 300 plus yards. He's had three touchdown passes in three of those games. He's also had a share of interceptions as well, which you mentioned seven of them over the last four games, but seven picks to 11 touchdown passes. He's thrown for, over 1,200 yards, approaching uh, 1,400 actually in that span. That's a short time frame to put up numbers like that. And this brings me to my next question. Where does Joe Flacco rank as far as Cleveland Browns quarterbacks just in your lifetime? So I'm not trying to go all the way back to like Bernie Kosar and and those guys because that was quite a long time ago. Otto Graham even played in like from the 40s to to the 50s, but – Neither you or I were around for that time period. Um, are there other guys that you can even really – that's a tough question to ask because of how many guys have have played under center for you in the last 20, 25 years.
1: Yeah, I think Kelly Holcomb is probably the best quarterback since they came back in 99. Unfortunately, he shattered his hip in his second season, but he's the guy that brought him to that 2002 playoff run. Um, I think Tim Couch was really good. He just had a really bad team around him. I mean, we saw what he did at Kentucky. Uh, he's glorified in Lexington, right? But um, he came to Cleveland and there's a couple big moments. He threw a Hail Mary against the Saints in like 2000 or 2001. And you could see the guy had a cannon. He just never had any time in the pocket. Um, Baker, you know, you can hate him as much as you want. Baker is probably a top three quarterback um, since the Browns have come back. And I really think, I mean, but he was healthy, and he's showing it again in Tampa Bay. He's healthy. I don't know that he's a Pro Bowl quarterback, but he's good enough if you have a good team around him to get the job done. And that's why I said with Deshaun Watson, I was I was very against getting Deshaun Watson first because that salary is ridiculous, right? Like you're you're taking up a third of your cap on one player, and you're talking about having an elite defense. You're talking about having Nick Chubb, Amari Cooper. It's only so many dollars and cents to go around. It doesn't make sense for a guy that had that controversy for a guy that hadn't played in 18 months at that time uh, to come to your team. But we're seeing it with Joe Flacco, right? A guy that's, you know, two and a half million dollar contract with a bunch of incentives. Uh, What what makes it really interesting is next year's the year that that contract for Deshaun actually like kicks in against the cap right now, this year, uh, the Browns have the most cap in the NFL, which is kind of nuts to think about, but they're using that rule where half your cap left over can be added on to next year's cap. Um, so CBA Andrew Barry playing with numbers basically but um, I mean next year can you hope to retain Joe Flacco as a backup as a mentor as a guy to even have a competition with this Sean Watson because he's outplayed Watson and I think the answer is no right like I'd love to have him again even in an incentive-laden contract like right now where it's 500 grand to win in the playoffs it's 750 grand to win a million for a Super Bowl I think but like you know you can't you can't compete against Denver's gonna offer him a contract. You're gonna see maybe the Jets offer him a contract, depending on how Rogers' offseason goes, right? You're gonna you're gonna see a lot of quarterback hungry teams, Carolina even, that might try and offer him a contract. And you know, if you're asking me, hey, at 39, do you want to play for 10 million or two million? And unless I think that the Browns are gonna give me that legacy Super Bowl win that maybe catapults me to the Hall of Fame, I think the answer is I go with the money, right?
0: You would have to think so. It, certainly at Joe's stage in his career, that's something that you're going to have to think about. I, he did have quite a lucrative deal with the Ravens once upon a time, over $100 million.
1: Yeah, I was just saying, I think it was what, one hundred thirty-five,
0: Something around there. Something around there. I, I don't remember the exact number. Um, <laughs> you mentioned Baker Mayfield, who mm-hmm. currently has the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in first place in the NFC South. Is it a nightmare scenario for you if they if the Browns end up playing the Buccaneers in the Super Bowl? Or is that a chance at a little bit of like retribution almost?
1: So I guess I'll take you with my personal history. I wanted to draft Josh Allen that year so bad. Um, I was actually in the booth in West Virginia during that draft. And I remember they uh, were making fun of me. They were watching it in the video production room and over the P.A., like between innings they're like with the first overall pick in the NFL draft the Cleveland Browns select and then they're like hitting on the desk and stuff like that Baker Mayfield (laughs) and so I was I was disappointed but it was one of those things where I was happy to be wrong that Baker was going to be a good quarterback I still think Allen's had a significantly better career and I think you know in, in cold weather you want the big bodied guy that can run it kind of like you know, Ben Roethlisberger from Miami of Ohio instead of Charlie Fry, who the Browns picked that year, right? You know, it's the same concept. You get that bigger body guy that embodies the tough physical run game you have to play in, in Cleveland and in Pittsburgh and Buffalo and uh, Green Bay, Chicago, you know, during that time of year, you just can't air it out every single play. Um, but, uh, you know, I think I root for Baker in, in the way of he didn't do anything wrong, right? You know, he left – um, on the team's terms, not his terms. And uh, he, he was really good with the fan base. I remember he went to an Indians playoff game and shotgunned a beer and had a Lindor jersey on and was, you know, like pumping up the crowd during that playoff game. You know, like he was the quintessential, this could be the Browns quarterback. And he is the first playoff game winner, uh, you know, in over 20 years. So I, I can't hate the guy. Um, if anything, you know, you, you hope that this may be spurn some wheels and get some things moving to say okay how can we how can we fix deshaun watson and that whole situation you can't get rid of the contract but can you do something where you're spreading it out over time and making him cuttable or tradable or whatever it may be so
0: another thing that was on my list after the win the other night uh, kevin stefanski head coach of the cleveland browns that uh, the win against the Jets was his 37th mm-hmm. as head coach of Cleveland Browns, which broke him for a tie for third place in a Super Bowl era with most wins with Cleveland with Bill That's Belichick.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and
0: the the only other two coaches ahead of him, actually, in terms of wins in the Super Bowl era, don't have that many more than him. Marty Schottenheimer has 44. Sam Rutigliano
1: Ritigliano,
0: yeah, Ritigliano has, has 47 as well. And Tigliano didn't even have a winning record. He went 47 and 50 from 1978 to 1984. So, I mean, Stefanski, he's, he's a solid bet for coach of the year. He's certainly going to be in the conversation this year with how much adversity this team has had to go through losing both offensive tackles, losing Grant Elpit, losing Nick Chubb, four starting quarterbacks. That's not necessarily a rec- recipe for double digit wins and a five seed in the playoff race. Where do you hold Stefanski in terms of other coaches in the league? And do you think he has the respect and
1: appreciation that he should deserve? I'm finally starting to see the tides turn in Cleveland. You know, like when he went on that playoff run, I remember um, the the playoff win in Pittsburgh, he had COVID for, so he was in his basement. Uh, he was not actually on the sideline. It was, uh, Mike Prefer, the uh, special teams coach, who was, like, calling plays that game. Um, And I remember, like, a lot of people saying, man, the offense worked so well, and it was because Stefanski wasn't on the sideline. And, I don't know, I've just always disagreed with that fundamentally. Like, I've seen a lot of bad head coaches. You know, I've seen Chud. I've seen Mangini. I've seen, I mean, even uh, Butch Davis. You know, like, Romeo Cornell gave us a couple of good years in 2005 to 2008, I think. Uh, But but really, I haven't been in love with the head coach outside of Stefanski, you know, like Stefanski was a guy I wanted after seeing what he was able to do with, you know, an average Minnesota team. Uh, He he comes over and, and, you know, immediately has to reshape the worst team in the NFL by far. Uh, And he was able to do it in a pretty quick amount of time. And, you know, the, the one thing I would say you could have against him was that his first defensive coordinator, he hired Woods was bad. I mean, there's no other way to say it. When you got, Miles Garrett, Denzel Ward, you know, um, you've got Newsom on the other side of your secondary, John Johnson. I mean, there were so many good players on that team last year and two years ago to have such a bad defense. Uh, and you see Jim Schwartz comes in. I mean, you beef up that defensive line a little bit, but, you know, Zedarius, uh, he's only got three sacks. I mean, he's big on pressuring, but he's, he's opening up holes for Shelby Harris, a guy that was already on the team. He's opening up holes for Ika, who is on the practice squad after being drafted. Like there are so many guys, like Taki Taki, who are having impact years because of the way the schemes have changed. So uh, you know, like he hitched himself to a bad defensive coordinator, but um, I, I think he's been really good. And to, to your point, you know, ranking him among other head coaches, I think this is Campbell's year to win or lose the um, the, the head coach of the year award, and I think it's solely based off your prior expectations. Um, So, I guess, you know, Stefanski won coach of the year four years ago. Bill Belichick has won two coach of the years his entire career, right? So, I don't think the academy, so to speak, likes giving it to people multiple times in a short stretch. Um, As much as I think he's certainly in the top three there, I think, you know, Campbell had a team that was really bad last year, and it's really good this year. And this is a Browns team that missed the playoffs by – by two games last year. So it was a team that was still good. It just became great. And I think you can credit Jim Schwartz a lot for the difference between being good and great. Now, when you look at a head coach, right, he's managing your other coaches. So yes, Stefanski made the hire Stefanski trusted Schwartz and, you know, went through with that personnel switch. Uh, So it's certainly a credit to him too. It's nice seeing people finally start to like Stefanski in Cleveland, because I don't want to run out the best head coach we've had ever, but um yeah, I, I don't think it's, it's him this year. I think he finishes in the top three. Uh, I think him, Harbaugh, and, and Campbell probably are, are the three that are going to be talked about, or, or maybe McDaniels uh, as the fourth from Miami.
0: Win or lose come playoff time? Right now, the Browns are in the five seed. More likely than not, in the wild card rounds, Cleveland will have to face the AFC South champion who that will be is still yet to be determined. Could be Indianapolis, could be Jacksonville, could be Houston right now. Jacksonville is in that four seed, but they're going to be without Trevor Lawrence this weekend. Do you feel like you're playing with house money? I feel like that's a yes answer, but win or lose come playoff time. Do you feel like this is already a successful season? So if let's say you, you get to the division round like you did a couple of years ago, is that, a success is that like all right we're we're back in the dance this is where we want to be or are you expecting more coming from this because i i would say you're definitely one of the three or four best teams in the afc to me and possibly even in that top 3 i mean you look at some of the statistics certainly defensively you set the standard definitely in terms of um pass defense right now you're first in the league and opponent yards per game, first in opponent third down conversion percentage, Uh, first in opponent completion percentage allowed, first in opponent passing yards per game, Uh, first in opponent interceptions thrown percentage. Some of that may come to opponents. Some of that is just a testament to the talent of that defensive unit as a whole. Is this a team you think can legitimately make a Super Bowl run or are you more content to see how the cards play out, and just being in the playoffs is is a win for you for this year.
1: Yeah, so week one, it was stefansky has got to make the playoffs or he's fired. That was like talk radio in Cleveland. That was the kind of local spotlight was, listen, we were in the playoffs in 2020. We've had back-to-back down years with nothing but excuses. First, it was, hey, our quarterbacks hurt, which is kind of funny based off how this year has worked. And then the, the second one was just, Hey, you know we had a ton of bad breaks. We we led the league in losses by a single possession. You know, it's, you got to figure out how to win those games, right? Good teams win single possession games, and this year the Browns lead the league in single possession wins. Um, I think the most important defensive stat um, that I've heard is that the Browns have the most three and outs forced, like in 20 years or something, which is just mind-boggling. But when you think about it, this team does not have a run game anymore. You know, they're they're down to their fifth and sixth tackles. They're down to. I mean, Jerome Ford was a guy that was supposed to get five carries a game this year. Cream Hunt is not who we believe Cream uh, Hunt was based off of you know his stats three and four years ago. He's a guy averaging two yards a carry. Um, so this is a team that. Running out the clock is going to be difficult. You're kind of hoping more screen passes, get to guys in space. Your you know five to seven yard passes are how you're going to chew up clock. But it, it helps a lot when the defense is able to spend ninety seconds on the field and force a punt, uh, so that way you can still have that control of the clock. Uh, because controlling the clock is how you win playoff games, you know. Um, and that's that's where you know you said do you expect to make a Super Bowl run? I don't know with this running game that you can make a Super Bowl run because, I mean, you saw it um, this week twice. You know, um, when you got to run the ball and they know that you're running the ball, you're going to average a yard of carry. And, you know, sometimes you just need three first downs so you don't kick it to Patrick Mahomes. Or sometimes you need, you know, two first downs to close out a game against the Eagles and Hurts. So um, I-, I think week one, if you're in where you're at right now, and let's let's face it, I mean the Steelers and the Dolphins both beating the Ravens has to happen for the Browns to to get the one seed, right? You're either in the first seed or the fifth seed. They have the tiebreakers and in, in all the wild cards in place. So they're either the fifth or the first seed. Those are the only two options. Um one's probably not happening. And personally, I prefer to rest starters next week (laughs) then then hey let's play the starters and hope the ravens lose to a a bad Steelers team this year um but uh, i think you know you're playing trevor lawrence or you're playing uh, i think cj Stroud, right like i think i don't know that indianapolis has a a fantastic shot at it with what they've got but even if you do like the, the browns have actually beaten all three of those teams so um you know, I would personally think that week one, that's gotta be a win, even though you're on the road. But after that, you're you're on the road, right? You know, unless unless you're playing Buffalo. Um, that's kind of your only chance is Buffalo beats another team if they don't win the division. Um, because I think they can still win the division right now. Um so yeah, I mean I think week one you gotta win after that. Like you said, house money. If it happens, that's fantastic. If not, next year you got a healthy Nick Chubb. Um, I think Uh, Dwayne Jones or the the big right tackle from Ohio State uh, I think he might be the best pick they had this year I mean he mauls people in the run game he's been great in the pass game now you find a left tackle to pair along him because I don't think they re-signed Jedrick Wills after this year But you know I I think there's a lot of really good things to build off this season
0: UT's Buffalo and Miami potentially switching places in the playoff seating I've Kind of been looking into that as well. Miami plays Baltimore this week. We know how good the Ravens are. And then Miami finishes their season against Buffalo. And I do agree that that's your best chance of having a deep playoff run would be if one of those two teams knocks off Kansas City and you end up getting a home playoff game in that second round. Um, I, I'm i tempted, though, to say you might almost want to face Kansas City instead. Just because in the last couple
1: of weeks, you're not wrong.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, they struggled the last last handful of weeks. They're three and five in their last eight games, which isn't exactly a comforting uh, stretch to have if you're a Chiefs fan. But the Browns, uh, they're plus thirty seven hundred odds on uh, FanDuel Sportsbook right now for those of you who partake in sports betting. I think it's worth a sprinkle. You know, I, I won't pick them as my favorite, but they've been proving people wrong all year. And if you can have a game or a two in the playoffs where you keep things going and and the team continues to build around Flacco and uh, mold that offense around his skill set, I think the ceiling of this Browns team has yet to be seen. Certainly, it feels that way. I I mean, Flacco's only been quarterbacking the team for for five weeks. And that first week he came right off the couch. So it's not like he had a ton of time to to get familiar with the playbook and, and his players. Sure, he played with Elijah Moore previously, but you have Amari Cooper having a franchise record day two weeks ago. Then David Njoku absolutely goes off against New York on Thursday night. You can't expect performances like that every week, but I'm starting to feel like maybe we should almost from this Flacco offense. I, I mean the scape, the landscape of quarterbacks in the league. There, there aren't many guys right now playing at his level. There's a handful, but I would say right now, Flacco's certainly in that top half of the league in, ter- in terms of quarterbacks. Just not necessarily overall like resume and everything like that, but how he's playing right now today, uh, I would definitely yeah.
1: say so. I think he's got the hot hand. I don't think he's January Flacco from his Super Bowl run. I think there he went like. 17 touchdowns and zero interceptions on that run or something like I don't think you see that performance out of him this year but that was also you know 10 years ago and, and I think um one thing that's like really overlooked is just how well he's able to manage the guys um one thing that worries me I'm not sure if you saw the report this morning uh Elijah Moore's doctor recommended he retire after that concussion uh on Thursday night so I, I don't know how that works out but you know I'm one of those people that say he's got to do what's best for him you know like zero bad blood if he decides to take the money and run um if he decides to play you know i'll still root for him even though it's it's you know dangerous according to what this concussion doctor is saying you know same thing as Tua, right like they need to do what they want to do with their life you know it's it's their body not mine um but if the doctor is saying he recommends he retires i imagine we're not seeing elijah more on a football field at least this year right like maybe next year but um certainly not in a playoff run here. Uh, so the question is, how bad is that heel for Amari Cooper? Because the offense looks really different without those two receivers, and after that, Cedric Tillman's your top guy. Um, but, I mean, you mentioned Njoku. Uh, if you go back in, like, my my Twitter three years, which would take forever to do, um, you, you'll see – I remember having a conversation with some Steelers fans about how I thought Njoku was the best tight end in the division – and he just ha- didn't have someone to throw it to him. Like he's hyper athletic. Uh, I mean, he's he. The one thing that worries me about him is that he loves leaving his feet to jump over people, and I hate that from big bodied players. But I mean, he's finally catching the ball. The first couple years, that was the worry with him was he had trouble catching and holding onto the ball. But I mean, this guy once he gets it, he moves in space, and, and he's like you know having Darren Sproles. He's shifty with a big body. <laughs> Now Sproles was probably a foot shorter than him, but uh same thing, like had that wide build where it's like he could run you over or he could run around you.
0: Last question for you. And this is more a tease towards next season for mm-hmm. Cleveland. Now there's is there a quarterback competition now going into next season? I, I mean, obviously Flacco will be a free agent. And you mentioned he may have options elsewhere where he can start right away, but if you're Cleveland, if you do make a deep playoff run and Flacco is the guy that's helping you to do that, what percentage chance between zero and a hundred would you say that Joe Flacco is the starting quarterback in 2024 for Cleveland?
1: I think it's the same percentage chance as if he wants to sign with Cleveland, right? Um Cleveland doesn't have the big dollars to give to him. You know, like Aaron Rodgers went to New York and still got the big dollars, right? Like so um if if he's willing to say, "Hey, let's run it back and let's try it again," and signs for a, a team-friendly discount because he understands that the defense is elite because he likes working with the receivers in the room or whatever, I think there's a high chance. You know, I think the other thing to consider is although Deshaun Watson doesn't have the gaudy stats, uh, Deshaun Watson was five and one this year. Last year his record wasn't the same, but this year he went five and one with the same defense. Uh, and granted, he went five and one with you know two of those wins having Nick Chubb running for, you know, he was leading the league by over hundred yards after six quarters. <laughs> so, um, you know, Nick Chubb is certainly a really big part of how this offense flows uh, once he's back in it and he'll be in a contract year next year. Um, I would hope that Cleveland locks him up because I'd love for him to be a lifelong Brown, you know, regardless of how his health and the remainder of his career shakes out. Uh, I just hate to see him in another uniform based off of him just being a consummate professional a guy that, you know, doesn't talk to the media unless it's good things about his team. He puts his head down and, you know, is quietly the best running back in the league. I don't think it's particularly close, right? Like people talked about Derek Henry for a while, but, you know, you compare those two stats and there's one guy who's clearly uh, done better in the games that he's played. You know, I think Jonathan Taylor with this whole holdout thing ruined a lot of his legacy.
0: John Coxis, ladies and gentlemen, Columbia Fireflies, play-by-play broadcaster. Also an author recently published, Uh, you've got a book out currently play by play from the minors profiles of baseball broadcasters from Scranton to Yakima. You've got a good bit of experience doing play by play in the minor leagues. You and I both have some stories we can share from that, which I would love to delve into on a future episode. But you can find that book on Amazon. Are there any other services or or publication um, locations where, where some of our listeners can find that book?
1: Yeah, it's on McFarland Books. You can do special orders where it's on the website for Books A Million as well as Barnes & Noble. And then if you're in Columbia, it's at All Good Books on Harden Road in person. If you're not a fan of the online shopping, it is in a brick-and-mortar store. Awesome. John,
0: thanks for coming on, my man. I've, I've enjoyed talking some Browns football with you. I've been a fan of this Cleveland team from the beginning of the year, and, I, and I'm glad to see them having some success. I hope I hope they can finish the year strong.
1: Yeah, hopefully they can do us proud. Thanks for having me, man. This was a blast to chat and look forward to uh, seeing this in future episodes. Absolutely. All
0: right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, John Coxis, once again from the Columbia Fireflies. Stick around. We've got some Yoshinobo Yamamoto talk coming around the corner, as well as some college football playoff previews as well. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the rest of the show. Fifth and Long fans. Once again, Patrick Demar, the commish, back in the house. Paul K. Shack, my man. Happy New Year, two thousand twenty-four. First, fifth, and Long of two thousand twenty-four. This is a, this is now a pretty consistent thing.
2: Yeah, dude, I can't believe uh, we made it through the twenty twenty-three year, and and now we're we're doing podcasts in twenty twenty-four. I feel like we've kind of made it to the to the big time here.
0: I felt like it was already. 2024 like a week ago i'll be honest yeah. <laughs> like january 30th or uh december 30th december 31st for some reason i was already thinking ahead like I, it's 2024 but here we are here we are and um a part of the new year's festivities some college football playoffs action a very what's the word i'm looking for uh polarizing uh, college football playoff this year a lot of different conversations people had very drastically different opinions one way or the other about most of the teams in the top five or six obviously only four of them ended up making it to the big dance these were some great games dude like great games I, I was just sitting watching on the couch with my pops um michigan bama first of all holy cow harbaugh Sabin totally lived up to what people were hoping it was going to be only the second overtime game in college football playoff history. You and I were texting about that. The other was the Rose bowl between Georgia and Oklahoma when Baker was at Oklahoma still, and they lost in that game. What was your just initial thought process watching this? And how did it feel just to like get through all the bullshit and finally just get to the games themselves?
2: Well, dude, I mean, it was great that we actually got the, that the college football playoff semis, you know, like lived up to the hype and that they were such good games. Because I tell you what, those games earlier on in on New Year's Day were just absolute clunkers. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you know, my, my, you know, my favorite college team or one of not my actual favorite college team, but my 2023 team, Iowa just gets demolished. I mean, Liberty, Oregon, why is that even a matchup? and then you know just a day or two earlier we saw exactly why florida state doesn't belong in the college football playoff i i'm aware that they had all of you know their backups because of a lot of opt-outs but like the major bowl games leading up to these were clunkers i mean it was it was just not entertaining to watch and then we just get two absolute doozies you know with the rose bowl and then the sugar bowl here so i was just i was just pumped that we like Yes, we, we lived up to the hype. Everything we've been waiting for for like a month now, it came to fruition, and now we have our national, uh, national championship matchup.
0: Yeah, Michigan and Washington, which you and I picked Washington both, not just to make it, but also to win the national championship altogether, which we'll talk about. But we were on flip sides of this Michigan-Bama game. We're going to give Michigan their flowers first. I want to go back and defend my Bama take a little bit before we do that. Um, terrible game offensively from Bama. I think you had – you said that Milrow had only one completion in the first half before that final drive at the end of the second quarter, right?
2: Yeah, his his big bomb to uh, Isaiah Bond that kind of opened up that, that drive that ended up in a field goal at the end of the first half, uh, they said was just his second completion – all, all first half. And that Bama as an offense had under hundred yards in that first half. It was really kind of abysmal after they, they scored the touchdown that Michigan set them up with uh, a short field because of that muff punt. So it was surprising that they really couldn't get things going. And, you know, they weren't able to do some of the little things, right. Especially with those snaps, those poor, poor low snaps.
0: Alabama only had 288 total yards. There was definitely some poor snaps, even on that last play, that snap wasn't great. Milroe, 116 passing yards. I sent a text to you at halftime saying they've got to get Milroe in more design runs, just get the ball in his hands. That's where he's the most dangerous. That's where their offenses had their best plays outside of that shot to bond that you mentioned. And they started doing a little bit more of that. He had 21 carries in total in the game. So it definitely sort of fit that script I was, I was thinking of. And Alabama played great. They came back in the game. They, they were up. Actually, in the fourth quarter, they were outscoring Michigan 10-0 in the second half. Of course, McCarthy leads that two-minute drive, ties the game, gets it back in overtime, and and wins it again with another touchdown or scores another touchdown again, scores another touchdown, excuse me, and wins it uh, for Michigan. (laughs) Really, the difference in this game was in the trenches. Bama's running game couldn't get started. Completely. And Michigan had their big run plays sort of when they needed him. Corum obviously had that winning touchdown run and Michigan's D line went crazy, dude. It, It was like there was pressure on Milrow. It felt like every single snap. So even when he wasn't on these design runs, he was forced to move out of the pocket and try to make throws on his feet.
2: Yeah, dude. I mean, uh, they, you know, Milroy, You talked about some of his design runs, and he was able to get in space a couple times and, and make some plays happen. But when you look at it, he had 21 carries for just 63 yards. Now, I know that on on that you like you factor in sacks or negative rushing yards in in college, in case people don't know. So that's why some of the yards per carry doesn't look great. But that speaks to the pass rush of Michigan. I think they had f- at least five sacks in this game. Um, I mean, six yeah, sacks, six ten sacks.
0: tackles for loss. 10 tackles go. for loss.
2: Yeah, man. I mean, that I mean, this was everybody was saying that this was the most elite defense in the country coming in. Some people were concerned that a lot of their stats had just been buoyed by the fact that they they had faced some uh some poor teams, especially early early on in their season. But I mean, they faced a real offense here from the SEC. And I think that, you know, for all intents and purposes, they made Alabama look like Michigan made the rest of the teams on their schedule look. Made him look uncomfortable, got after the quarterback here, stuffed up the middle, especially on that last play that that you mentioned, which I'm sure we'll we'll break down shortly here. So, um, you know, by and large, I kind of saw this coming in terms of it being a little bit more of a rock fight and lower scoring. Um, But like, let's not overlook the fact, too, that, like you said, Alabama was able to find not only find their way back in this game, but. Like kind of take control of it. They had they were winning of this with game. like two minutes yeah. left. They had they had control of this game throughout the third quarter and into the fourth quarter. Like Michigan's series in in the second half went like punt, punt. I think they had a fumble in there and a missed field goal. Like until we got to that final drive where absolutely ballsy play call from Harbaugh to go for it on fourth and two in his own end, but he had to.
0: <laughs> yeah, you called it exactly. Punt, punt, punt. Missed field goal. And then Bama hits that field goal to make it 20 to 13 touchdown punt end of the game, a regulation, at least Uh, that muff punt that Michigan had earlier in the game, set up that Bama drive. Like Michigan didn't play their best game. Really? It's it's, I didn't really think they won in overwhelming fashion, even though their D line dominated. It, It was almost like that, that D line was such a big key to the game And we'll talk about Washington a little bit. Uh, They've got a stellar offensive line. That's going to be an awesome matchup to watch uh, this coming Monday. I'm really excited to see who wins the trench battle in the national title. The two-minute drive, though, that McCarthy had. Well, I say McCarthy. Michigan, because it wasn't just him. Um, That play by, uh, was it? Rome Wilson or was it
2: Roman, Roman Wilson? If you're talking about the uh the throw, the throw from McCarthy and the catch that he made that got him down in a goal to go situation. Yeah, Roman Wilson was the receiver well, there, on that one.
0: Well, there was also the pass earlier on that drive where McCarthy's pass was like tipped at the line, and somehow Wilson adjusted and made that
2: sick catch on the sideline yeah. in that tight window too. Yes, sir. Yeah. And then he kind of spun out of it like as soon as he came down because he had they kind of had to make the catch over a defender and then he had another one right behind him that he was able to kind of get around and get extra yards to get them into that goal to go situation. So like phenomenal play from him, but let's not overshadow what Blake Corum was able to do. On that fourth and two Michigan did a great job of disguising. I think that play call, they had quorum set up on the other side of McCarthy. They kind of just motioned him around McCarthy subtly right before the snap on that. And they just said, Hey, go beat your man to the edge. He did. You know, I think the Alabama corner couldn't get out there fast enough. And, you know, it was kind of off to the races that got Michigan set up around midfield after that. And uh, you know, the rest was history, just absolutely. Like I said, gutsy play call, that's why Harbaugh's, you know, one of the best in the business, the willingness to trust his skill guys in that spot in fourth and two, the biggest play of the game at their own 33, I think it was, you know, I don't know. I don't know how these guys sleep at night, but knowing that plays like that are going to decide the outcome of a game this close.
0: I don't know if it was the biggest play of the game that that last play from Bama was the biggest play of the game, arguably. I mean,
2: well, like in technicality, because yes, that was the final play, but like that's Michigan season right there. They yeah, don't that's convert true. that they don't convert that they're down a touchdown at that point. And Bama would be able to just, Bama's got a great kicker too. Will Riker nailed two 50 yarders in this. So they're at their own 33. They don't pick that up there. That's ball game. Like, so for all intents and purposes, it just, it is just as big as the final play because Bama is going to be able to just sit on the ball, kick a field goal, go up two possessions and make it impossible for Michigan to come back and then pick that up.
0: Yeah. Uh- Roman Wilson's stretch of plays was crazy to me too because right before that first catch he had he had a block in the back on a really big run that Michigan had they had that big gash play the run over to the right side yeah and he got and he got called for the block in the back took
2: it took it I think it's
0: still they still had a first down on it but
2: um, yeah it turned like a 30 yard play into like a 15 or 20 yard play something like that like it was still a great play design
0: yeah and but after that I'm thinking like It's the typical, like, one step forward, two steps back kind of thing. Like, all right, what's going to happen next? Another big play, another big play. Got the touchdown. And then they double up on it at overtime. Bama gets the ball, and they get into a goal-to-go situation. I didn't understand why they weren't trying that quarterback draw earlier in that goal-to-go series instead of just on fourth down, really. Cause you remember they had a couple of those like fade passes sort of. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, man. Like I even said you and I were texting as that was going on. Like some people were on Twitter, were were hating on the play call, but you and I were even saying like, I texted you and I said, like, I can see him just putting the ball in his hands and like letting him run. And then you said like, I, I would have him roll out or something like that.
2: Yeah. Well, I, well, that was what I texted you, but like by for all intents and purposes, I think the ball should be in Milrose's hands on the final play. I wanted, I wanted to get him a little bit of space. I mean, he was doing those, those direct design QB runs throughout the course of the game, but that's (laughs) like around midfield when you got more room to work with. Right. I mean, the windows are no tighter than they are in the red zone and especially down inside the five knowing how good Michigan's D line is and they, I mean, they stuff the play hindsight's 2020, 20. but knowing how good Michigan's D line is, I want to try to neutralize them as best I can. And I want to give Milro an extra option. I want to give him the option to throw. If one of his skill, uh, skill players, you know, makes a play, runs a good route and is able to free up somewhere. I just think if rolling him out would have given him more options, would have neutralized Michigan's D line as best as possible. And I think ultimately would have given Bama a, uh, a better chance to convert there on that fourth down. But you know, it is what it is. The rest is history, and Michigan's moving on.
0: So they had a Jace McClellan run straight in the line of scrimmage. Then they lost five yards on another run play. Third down, they had that pass to Burton that actually got them within sort of the five. Uh they got to the three. And then they had the 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 run play, uh the milro play. I, I don't even know what to call it. <laughs> I actually I I thought for a second that. Maybe there was more of a pass design to the play, slightly more than they had let on, and that the snap was just low and he sort of adjusted and made like a split decision, like, I gotta go.
2: But like, I, Saban I can, even
0: said in the press conference, like, no, that was the play.
2: I, I can see like how you would draw that conclusion though, because I mean, you have to like, I think it was overshadowed when you look at the snaps. It's not, it's not just the fact that it's a poor snap and you risk the fumble there, but like his eyes come off the defense. Cause he he's got to put his head down. You know, he's got to go below, below the line. Like yeah. that can, that can affect the timing on a pass route um you know there could have be, even been
0: some like lack of deception there to it too i mean i mean the whole basis of a draw play in that situation is to make it look like you're going to pass and then right and then you yeah you right. don't even
2: have the time to to cock back you know with your arm and, and you know drop your foot back and make it look like you're going into a passing motion i agree but after the game man the twitter
0: hate from fsu people from georgia people it was crazy it was crazy. Georgia's celebrating beating Florida state by 50 something. I don't even remember what 60, the final 60, 63 60. to three, geez, 63 to three. There's a reason why I didn't watch any other bowl games, by the way, these are the only two that I've watched. And I, I
2: like I said, they're the only two worth watching,
0: <laughs> but you're very right. Um, but after they beat florida state by 60 uga fans are like screaming on twitter oh we like we we should have been in this game we would have beaten michigan you had your chance to beat bama and you didn't that's where i stand on the matter you you could be one of the four most talented teams in the country but the four most deserving teams to be in the playoff made it florida state you could maybe make another argument because there are other people throwing shade at milrose saying like wow, Bama made it over us because our quarterback was out only for this guy to throw for 116 yards or whatever. Like like our backup could have done that. Our third stringer could have done that. I don't know if that's necessarily true against that Michigan D-line. <laughs> if UGA beat Florida, Florida State by 60, Michigan might have beaten them by 90.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I, when we did our uh, our college football Playoff preview. I advocated that. I still thought Georgia was one of the best teams in the country and you admitted that they they might be one of the the foremost talented teams in the country. I personally still believe that they are, but you make a fair point. Like it was there in front of them. They couldn't beat Alabama. I advocated that you could have put them in over Texas, but Texas won their conference. And like at the end of the day, I think Georgia did everything that they could to prove to what they could to people, you know, winning The Orange Bowl, which it's just it's a shame that like because of all the opt outs that that's just like a meaningless bowl this year. But yeah, I mean, like you don't you don't have the right to go on Twitter after the fact after you weren't selected and say that you would have, you know, you would have won. And like to make it seem that Alabama's performance wasn't worthy of being here. You have to be kidding me. This game went to overtime. I mean, it's, they were it, up on with Two left. minutes yeah, left. Literally with two minutes left. I mean, come on. I agree. I agree. I, I think Georgia, in a different universe, if things played out a little bit differently, they could be playing for the national championship. But they aren't, and it is what it is. I think it's the same. It's the
0: flip side of the argument of results matter that the Florida State people were saying, where twelve wins and undefeated season matters, yes, but also losing in your conference championship matters to a team that's even to you resume wise, like that does matter. It's the same thing, the different sides of the coin, but it's the same thing.
2: Right. And I'm, don't get me started on Florida state. Cause you know, my opinions about Florida state <laughs> before, we, before, <laughs> before this college football playoff even went down, it's one thing for Georgia players to come out and say, Oh, that, you know, that they, they could have given Michigan a game here, or, or they'd be playing for the national championship. It's a whole nother thing for a team that granted. Yes, I know. They had like 20 plus opt-outs they basically had their second and third strings in there but you still lost by 60 like shut your mouth okay just just you didn't belong and you you can you can whine and pout all you want that you went 13 and 0 in an inferior conference you didn't belong and and I'm sorry you would not have put up a better performance than Alabama did today plain and simple or a couple days ago that is
0: something that I'm kind of happy about is that there are no SEC teams playing for a national championship which I feel like, considering you and I went to an SEC school in our friend circle, that's a hot take.
2: Generous to call the Gamecocks an SEC football school with, with the <laughs> way that they play. <laughs> that's fair.
0: That's fair. We're, we're getting there. We're on the come up. Believe in Beamer, sort of. I think. I believe in Beamer.
2: Yeah. Makes, makes one of us, but all right.
0: Um, Texas does not count as an SEC school in this scenario, even though they're going to be playing in the SEC next year. They
2: literally won the big 12 championship this year. So they are a big 12 team. That's so just... you don't count this as a, a big 10 matchup then like, because Washington's going to be in the big 10 next year. Uh, no. big, Ten, big 10 supporters are trying to say this is a big 10 versus big 10 matchup. No,
0: this is big 10 Pac-12. <laughs> this is big 10 Pac-12. The Pac-12 was probably the best conference in college football this year. Like the the deepest, at least in terms of talent, other teams like giving each other a
2: run. Go back. Yeah, Pac-12 was elite this year. It's it's tough because they didn't have as many teams as an SEC or a, or a Big Ten, so it's tough to kind of quantify that or like the scales are a little bit different. But yeah, you talk about like top to bottom strength. Pac-12 was right there with the top dogs this year.
0: Totally agree. Totally agree. Um, <laughs> but no, I'm stoked that this is different teams. I love that. It feels fresh. It feels more exciting. As someone who's neutral that doesn't really care who wins, I have. I feel like I have more reasons to watch, honestly, to see a different, totally brand new team win the title, which hopefully we get more of with the 12 team playoff next year. But um, other game, Washington beats Texas, 37-31. Awesome performance from Michael Penix Jr. 430 yards, two touchdowns, uh, 31 yards on the ground as well. I did some research because he played really well and and I was kind of curious as to, what some of the other fantastical uh, performances from quarterbacks in college football playoffs, semifinals? Fantastic word. Yes, it is fantastical. Okay, all right. It's all right. it's like fantastic but better.
2: <laughs> and that then that's in like Merriam-Webster's dictionary and everything. Yeah, look it up. Look it up right now. I'll I'll, I'll trust you. No, I trust you. <laughs> um, the
0: <laughs> I kind of want to look it up now. Fantastical, fantastical is this yeah fantastical
2: never mind <laughs> i knew it i knew fantastical is not a word come on man i mean like I, I i get your sentiment and get what you're going here but another fantastical is not a word
0: another word for fantastic british english collins english dictionary yeah that counts i'll take it it's not webster's but yeah webster's probably like what a zillion years old anyways Get with the time I don't
2: know how many years old it is. I just know that that's the standard by which we go for new words. So if you want to go to this Collins English dictionary or whatever BS that is, to for the sake of your argument, by all means, we'll give it to you.
0: Fantastical is what all the kids on the streets are saying these days, from what I hear. Anyways, um
2: Yeah, let's get back into football. Good I look
0: I looked into the like what was the best performance ever from a college quarterback? And there's some Crazy Joe Burrow games, crazy Deshaun Watson games. Ultimately, this performance from Phoenix Junior probably doesn't even crack the top five. I want to do that another time. Um, 430 yards, two touchdowns. Washington wins 37-31. Texas almost came back at the end, too. They almost had it with little to no time, really, to do so, honestly. They had that fourth and whatever situation from was it like was it the goal was it inside the goal uh the red zone it was definitely inside the red yeah, zone. yeah they were inside remember. the
2: red zone they were was inside it, the red zone i don't know it, if it was technically goal to go um because i think they had a, a small penalty that might have moved them back at one point um but yeah they were it was they was within 10 15 yards on that final play they decide to kick the
0: field goal, though, instead of the touchdown. Fourth and four oh, at the I'm Texas. Sorry. I'm
2: sorry. I thought you were talking about the very, the very no. last play. The very Fourth last and drive. four
0: at the Washington seven. The This was like the key to the game for me. They, they kick the field goal. They make it obviously, right? Get the ball back. Luckily, a few plays later. Had they elected to go for it and they had gotten it in that situation, they only would have needed a field goal to win at the end.
2: Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't mind the decision to go for it, considering it's fourth and four. Um, I thought like,
0: that's this. I understand that's the situation. Like you need to field goal anyways, take it. But in hindsight, to me, that's something that I haven't really seen talked about that. I was surprised wasn't even slightly, but at the same time, like you could make the argument, the reason they played, the reason they were able to get into that situation is because they played it out the way they did too.
2: Yeah, I, I was I was fine with uh with what Texas did there. I I think I think if you get that in a um like if you get that within two yards, I I think if you cut that that yardage to go deficit in half, I think that that's when you might justify it. But fourth and four, I was fine with Sarkeesian's decision to go for or uh, to kick the field goal there.
0: Um, something else that really just caught my attention was Texas's play calling and and red zone offense. I felt like we see so much creativity now in the game, especially in the college game in the red zone, in the red area. And there's just too many of these, like too many, I mean, you've got great guys in Xavier Worthington and um, uh, AD Mitchell and having the ability to make those one-on-one contested catches, especially in that part of the field. But there was, it felt like that was just their go-to option. They were just going to keep hitting it and hitting it and hitting it. And it, it only worked out for them really a few times in the game, not even just in that exact situation, but like through the whole length of the field.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, like you mentioned it, they, they did find, um, I think it was Mitchell that, that who made a great play on a one-on-one situation on, on like a similar pass that uh, that the game ended on. And he was just able to make a play over his corner. Um, I don't think Texas was, like, Texas wasn't the team that stood out to me, though, when you talk about some questionable play calling. Washington was actually the team where I had a little bit more of a problem with with their play calling. And it was more so when they had the lead, when they were up two possessions, like a late third quarter, early fourth quarter, after they dominate time of possession, they, like, still just keep going out and, uh, and just are slinging the ball around. And I thought that that is another reason why Texas was able to get back into the game after – Penix tried the long bomb that he was able to draw a pass interference call on, which by the way, that was the one throw he missed on, on the day that we could talk about some of his throws in a little bit here. Like they went back to a, like a flea flicker trick play. And then there was uh, like a three and out after that. And I thought that they just gave the ball back to Texas very quick when they were up with 10 to 12 minutes to go like two possessions. Didn't make sense to me on Washington's play call either. I thought that there was questions on both sides. Yeah. I mean, to your
0: point, I feel like any like seasoned Madden player would have known to just rub the football, <laughs> just like run the clock out or, and, or and like, get the game over with.
2: Well, Washington wasn't able to like really dominate on the ground because Texas's defensive front was kind of taken over Um, Washington's O-line and Washington's not really <laughs> a, a running team. They're they're more pass first, but like go for some higher percentage throws, you know, they're, they're, they were still taking kind of deep shots and. I think like go to some screens, um, like, I don't know, trust some, some quick slants over the middle, do something a little bit more high percentage is what I was getting at. Yeah. But to be fair.
0: And you alluded to it a few moments ago, some of the throws Phoenix was making in this game were redonkulous. This guy is like, they're just seeds all over the place. Like left, left of the field, right. Uh, left hash, right hash, uh, over the middle, whatever, like short, intermediate, deep. He's hucking bombs out there or rockets, like darts to the sideline. And it was so, so fun to watch him just play back there. And I, I'm thinking, like, I don't care where the Pats pick. Like, I, I wouldn't hate this guy coming
2: Here he goes coming again, <laughs> Making it about the New England Patriots.
0: <laughs> uh, I mean, I feel spoiled. Like, we have all these great quarterbacks to choose from. May, Williams. Uh, Jaden Daniels, uh, Penix Jr., Bo Nix, even some would say. I'm not the biggest Bo Nix guy, but like Penix, I can't believe isn't talked about more in that regard. And and it's, I understand it's because of questions to his health. He's had two ACL injuries, right?
2: I know so, two leg injuries. I don't know if they're both specifically ACL, but um, I do know that there's been a little bit of an injury history with him.
0: Yeah, it's still if you're looking at just being able to throw the football, he's really freaking good at it. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that this this game is gonna is gonna raise his draft stock big time. And you're right; he wasn't getting mentioned up in the tier with obviously Caleb Williams and Drake May. And and I, barring like the most insane college football championship performance, I don't think he's ever going to get to that tier. But I think that some people out there, at least right now, are having a, the discussion well, who's better, Jaden Daniels or, or Michael Penix? And and you're right. It's because of like the quantity of throws that he was able to make in this game. I thought he showed arm strength on two separate platforms. One, just absolutely like getting air under the ball, throwing it purely deep, 50, 60 yards in the air and hitting receivers in stride. But his intermediate passing game was great, too. His By far, his best throw of the day was the one that he made – on their opening touchdown drive in the second half so games 21 21 coming out of half leads him down and the ball's at the 19 yard line and he hits Jalen McMillan on like a skinny post right up the middle of the field and he like it's tough for the camera you know how the camera obviously is focused on the quarterback when they're dropping back and then it pans to, to where the ball is actually thrown to down the field it was difficult for the camera to keep up with the ball that's how hard he threw it, and how much zip he had on it. He absolutely threads the needle to see to McMillan for a touchdown. And I don't even think that the safety on the far side for Texas played it wrong. Like he was over there and he was a split second late only because Penix threw the ball perfectly on a dime and on a line. Like there was no arc to it at all, just bam, right in there. I would encourage listeners to go back and look at that play, his touchdown throw to make the game 28 21 to McMillan. It was by far his best throw of the day. Absolute dime.
0: So now the real question is is Washington going to be able to do the same things offensively against Michigan?
2: That's that's a loaded question because
0: that's cuz that's the game breaker to me for the Natty is I feel like if any defense can slow down Washington's offense, it's probably Michigan's.
2: Right. I think, like, for one, I thought Texas did a very good job of of keeping Washington's run (laughs) attack in check. Um, Dylan Johnson, who's now going to be hurt for the game, they're starting running back because of Washington not deciding to take a knee. That's another thing to talk about, and you could have made the argument that just take a knee rather than actually running the football at the end of the game. It gave Texas that last opportunity. Um, He only had 21 carries for 49 yards in this one, and Michigan's defensive front is going to be – As good or better than Texas is. We saw that on display against Alabama. So there's going to be virtually no run game from Washington. And so it's going to be all on Penix's shoulders, which is going to be incredibly difficult. The one thing, the thing I'll say in Washington's favor, while it's going to be predictable what their game plan is going to be, it's just going to be air raid and, and pass it out. I think that Michigan's defensive secondary is going to have a lot more difficult of a time with the skill guys of Washington. I think that there's a higher quantity of them for, for the Huskies and they're more talented than the guys that Alabama had Romo Dunze, if not for Marvin Harrison being a generational wide receiver prospect would be the number would be the best receiver in this draft class. And then throw in Jalen McMillan and Jalen Polk. Like it's a lot of guys to cover.
0: You're not wrong. And I, I totally agree with you as far as that goes. I will say, though, Jesse Minter, the D coordinator for Michigan, he knows how to draw up a game plan, too. He had some awesome delayed blitzes, like stunts and everything, worked in. And Washington has
2: a fantastic offensive line. Not fantastical. There you go, Paul. (laughs) Um, They They are pretty good at limiting sacks. I think I saw that stat there, which is going to be big. Like, I mean, if they can get pressure on Penix, get him flushed out of the pocket and, you know, like – they can prevent him from just sitting back there and letting the the routes develop from those receivers it will be difficult um personally i'm just as much worried for washington um how like how are they going to stop michigan's run game i'm worried about i'm worried about washington in the trenches here because i thought texas was able to do a really good job running the football today i actually didn't think they ran it enough Listen to uh listen to the yards per carry for for their running back. CJ Baxter, nine carries sixty four yards. That's a seven point one yards per carry. Jaden Blue, nine carries fifty-nine yards, uh, six point six. Um then Quinn Ewers added some himself on the ground. He averaged over six yards per carry. Like, what do you think Blake Corham's gonna gonna do to the Washington defense?
0: Yeah, I hadn't really thought of it that way. Um I was more so I guess I don't associate Michigan with, like, for whatever reason, I have not associated their team with, like, racking up big points on the others, and I just feel like Washington's going to be able to score points. The question is, how many do you think they're going to have to score? So they scored 37 against Texas. Are they going to be able to score 37 against Michigan? Probably not. Are they going to be able to score more than 17 against Michigan? Maybe. Probably. Oh. Probably. If, Washington,
2: if Washington can't score 17 against Michigan, they're Michigan, not going to beat them. Crown Michigan, the national champs right now. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Would you say they have to score four touchdowns then to, to feel like they have a chance? Like you got to yeah. get around that 30
2: point mark. That's the target. That, that's what I was thinking, you know, somewhere between 27 and 30 points. Let me take a look what the over under is in this one right now, real quick. Sorry to our listeners for not knowing that off the top of my head. So, over under sitting at 55 and a half for this game with Michigan as a four and a half point favorite. So, uh, I don't know. What would that suggest right there that they think that this is going to be like a 31-27-ish game, like in that general ballpark? I think Washington's got to hit the 30 mark. I have a tough time seeing them win this game if they don't score 30 points. I would say that's their magic number.
0: Okay. I – then do you think Michigan is easily going to be able to score that many points against Washington? Like, if you say Washington has to score 30 points, that means they're probably thinking about putting up even more than that. How can we do that, right? Mm -hmm. Michigan's going to be trying to play the flip flip side of it, obviously. We have to stop them or
2: outscore them. Well, here's the thing. So the way that these teams are going to control the clock is going to really influence things as well. I think Michigan's game plan next week in in the championship game as tar- it won't be as targeted on them just racking up points as it will be controlling time of possession. Although right. Washington was great at time of possession in the third quarter of their game against Texas. <clears throat> the thing at Texas do was like 12 to two or something like that in, in time of possession. And then they kind of got away with it with some of those plays I was talking about um, just kind of still sticking to, to that deep passing game in the fourth quarter. If Michigan's able to run the football and have sustained six, seven minute drives, it's going to, I think it can get Washington out of rhythm and they're going to try to play as defense with their offense a little bit as well. And so, for that reason, I don't think Michigan's looking at this as terms of we need to score X amount of points to win this game. I think they're saying we need to control the ball for X amount of time. And I think that that's how they're going to approach it here. I would say if Michigan's going to want to keep this game more low scoring, uh, the way I look at it, obviously, is if the, the more points scored in this game, better for Washington, fewer, better for Michigan. I think Michigan's probably looking at it. Can we tr- control the clock enough to keep Washington bel- at twenty-four points or below? I think that that is where Michigan starts feeling confident.
0: One other thing I will mention: Texas had ten penalties against Washington. Double-digit penalties in any game, regardless of who you're playing, is hard to overcome. Washington only had five penalties. Texas gave up sixty-six yards on the on their ten penalties. Washington gave up thirty-nine. Um, Alabama against Michigan, three penalties, 15 yards, Michigan, two penalties, 25 yards. You're going to be playing a much more disciplined, really well coached football team. Like the room for error is so much smaller now against a team like Michigan for so many reasons And the big brain in charge of it all is a big reason why, (laughs) like you got to figure out a way to beat Harbaugh in the biggest game he's coached probably since the super bowl right
2: yeah i'd say so um i can't remember if he's had like a nfc championship in the middle of or in in between that span but um he came back to michigan for a reason he came back to michigan to establish establish them you know as a dominant power once again yeah they so yeah i mean this is like his his
0: journey to mecca
2: you know like this way yeah
0: this is like (laughs) <laughs> that's it's a bad reference but like this is I what mean, it-
2: i mean like yeah maybe that was a little bit short-sighted on the reference but i mean he would probably i guess if you put true serum in him like he i think he'd probably say he'd rather win a super bowl just since that's the crown jewel of football but this is not too far behind you know He's i like, don't know i it. think i think michigan is like his baby and like
0: i don't i i can see him winning and like hoisting the CFP trophy with tears streaming down his face, I don't see the tears with the Super Bowl trophy.
2: Maybe I mean college is more of an emotional game. I mean you just just with uh, the fan bases and everything like that. I mean there's there's I feel like there's way more emotion. Like you you feel like you're part of something. Like being a he went to Michigan, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He played quarterback there. Um, so you know just like being part of the university, being an alum, um all the fans are like, you feel like they are with you more than like on an NFL stage. I understand how, how the emotion could, uh, could make him feel that way. You know, I don't know, not inside his head when it comes to that. Um, I do know that this is probably going to be, I guess I don't know for sure, but all the writings on the wall that this is going to be his last game there too, you know, like he's going to be looking to go to the NFL. He's hired an NFL agent. Like this is it. And a lot of these Michigan players, I heard somewhere that they could be sending like 17 players to the draft potentially, uh, top Georgia's record from a couple years ago. Like, I think that this is the last chance for a lot of these Michigan players and for Harbaugh himself to actually win the Natty. Yeah, I, I think, I kind of hope he stays, but
0: I think with the potential of his future in Michigan, like already being in question with all the the sign stealing stuff from earlier in the year, I, I could understand why he would make the decision to leave no matter what.
2: Yeah, anyway, I mean, he might. There might be sanctions or, uh, you know, yeah. stuff like that as well. So, like, he, you, it's like a kill two birds with one stone. You get to go to the NFL, get a really good paycheck there, and avoid all of that that you'd have to all that white noise you'd have to deal with if he stayed.
0: Exactly. Did you see the quote from McCarthy today, where he was like, "Well, eighty percent of the teams in college football uh, steal signs. We we had to just elevate our game to do it better," where right? he basically yeah. was like. Where he was saying that Ohio State was stealing signs from them, like really well back in the day, and they had to like try to flip the script.
2: He basically just outed them. I I don't <laughs> I don't doubt what he says is true. Like I do believe when we talked about the whole Connor Stallion scandal, I believe it too. Yeah, a weeks ago, I I think I might have even just outright said like I think that other college teams are doing this. They probably are, but like, if you get caught, you get caught. You can't be so obvious with it and I don't I don't really know why you need to make a statement like that you're in the college football playoff championship I mean come on focus on the game ahead yeah you're right <laughs> back who to you got, who you got in this one I was about to say yeah I was gonna you're you're throwing it on me first yeah um, man I mean I thought that you were still with me on this we talked a lot about Michigan but um
0: I don't know man I kind of I could see it going either way. And my heart wants to go Washington, but my brain wants to go Michigan. Like the Huskies, I feel like they have the best quarterback, right? But do they have the best team overall? Like you made a point about Washington's defense. How well are they going to do against michigan's offense like michigan might just be able to keep up with them the whole game and like gash them and control the clock and then all they would need is a few stops basically
2: here's what i think is going to happen okay typically we see teams defer when they they win the coin toss like i just deferred like you just <laughs> like you just deferred you didn't give me a uh, <laughs> give me a, a definitive answer So I am going to go with Washington in this game. Here's what I think is going to happen. Here's the script. Washington's going to win the coin toss, and they're going to take the opening drive, and they're going to score. And they're going to put the pressure on Michigan right away. And they're, they're going to try to get out up on them early and make Michigan play from behind. If Washington can ever get up by two touchdowns in this game, it's over. I don't think Michigan will be able to compete with them. Michigan, conversely, again, if they can just slow that game down, And just get washington out of rhythm that's their their method but i said back when we did the college football uh preview that i thought that washington had a case for the number one overall seed and i stand by that uh penix is the first guy since patrick mahomes to have back-to-back 4500 yard passing seasons it's an incredible feat i think they have too many weapons i think washington scores early and they are able to hold off michigan and I think that they do get this win and they're the college football playoff champions. I, I'm going with the Huskies here. It'd be fitting as well as like the PAC 12s final year, right? Okay. Wouldn't it be poetic if in the PAC 12s final year, death of the PAC 12 <laughs> team wins it all. Come on. I mean, 30 like, for you 30. Could, yeah. We talk about scripts and everything like that. NFL scripted football scripted. I mean, come on, wouldn't that fit right into the script for the Huskies? Yeah. I think we just had an earthquake. That is uh, that's crazy that you say that if you actually did have an earthquake, uh, I didn't feel anything up here, but of course we're far apart on the East coast here. When that game was coming to a close, the Texas, Washington game, there was apparently a mini earthquake in Rockville, Maryland, which is only a little bit South of me. It's about a half hour South of me. Yeah. Um. And the alarm system in my house started going off like on that final drive from Texas and none of the doors were open. I had no idea what was going on, but it's like motion activated. So, we think that like the tremors from Rockville, just about half hour away, were set the alarm off. I mean, there was a little bit of an earthquake back where I was, uh, New Year's night. So it's crazy that you just felt an earthquake in South Carolina, though. I guess that's
0: yeah, we've we had them before, not like yeah. big ones or anything, but I felt them before. Yeah. Um, that was so random. <laughs> I
2: didn't see it, I didn't see anything shake on your uh, on your screen there, but no, I trust I, you nonetheless. I just felt it. That's all that was
0: crazy. That was really weird. The, uh, so I am starting to lean more towards the Wolverines because I feel that they actually could come back from a two touchdown deficit. I mean, Texas found a way to come back from down 10 with like how much time left against Washington, like five minutes.
2: Yeah, but like everything had to go their way, as I was saying at at Washington. It took a a, a freak injury at the end of the game, you know, to stop the clock and basically give them an extra timeout.
0: Yeah, yeah. But they also made a lot more mistakes during the game than Michigan, I think, will.
2: Well, I mean, Michigan made plenty of mistakes against Alabama. Texas fumbled the ball twice, but Michigan muffed two punts. Like Michigan muffed a punt to set Bama up with their first touchdown. And then Washington
0: muffed a punt too.
2: They did. But what I'm saying, I'm like, I'm comparing, I'm just comparing the mistakes made by Michigan to Texas. I mean, Michigan also missed a field goal in there. It's like Michigan did not play a flawless game by any means. Yeah. I, so
0: I see that. I think that Washington has more depth at skill positions, but I don't necessarily think that their top ends are too dissimilar. Like, Washington has more weapons for Penix to throw to, and that, and Penix is a better quarterback than McCarthy. But I don't think McCarthy's a slouch by any means. I think he can sling it, too. I don't think he gets as much credit as he deserves. Corum is the best runner in this game. Mich- Michigan's going to win the trench battle on the O-line and the D-line. Although Washington has that uh, left tackle. I, I forget his name, but he's like a top-five draft pick. Um I want to say it's like Tefanu or something
2: like that. Washington's D line. Uh, while we are talking about uh, the battle in the trenches, Washington's D line did do a very good job of uh, disrupting Quinn Ewers' timing a little bit, batting some passes down. There were a bunch of deflections, especially early in that game. I think that got Ewers starting off a little bit slow, um, and was part of the reason that Texas was was playing from behind because uh, Texas never led in this game. Washington was it was always either tied or they were trailing Washington, but. So I think Washington's defense might be able to make some plays. I'm, I'm I am worried about what they do on, to stop Blake Corum, but I don't know. I I don't. There's no receiver that Michigan has that's nearly as good as Odunze. I, I know that Wilson's pretty good though. He's had a good year. Yeah, I don't think he's projected to be a top ten pick though.
0: No, he's not. You're right. <laughs> uh, I could. Where's Blake Corum getting drafted in a uh, fantasy football next year?
2: First rounder. All depends on the situation. All depends where he goes. um I don't know. You know, like it's interesting now that I think, I, I think that a lot of fantasy managers are probably gonna have PTSD after kind of what's happened with Bijan Robinson and being in somewhat of a quasi time share with Tyler Algier. Uh, I think it's it just depends on what the anticipated usage is gonna be on whatever team he goes to. See a lot of these teams now like doing time shares with rookies. You saw with Jameer Gibbs, B. John Robinson. What I was saying. Um, I told we'll you see.
0: earlier, don't trust rookies. That was, that was a few weeks ago. I said, don't trust the rookie running backs.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, by and large, I agree. I think that NFL teams are not to get too much off topic here, but NFL coaches and teams are wising up and realizing like, we can't just run these guys into the ground. As soon as we get them on our team, we got to, you know, got to split time, got to preserve them for the long haul because it is such a bruising position and so prone to injury.
0: I, I'm siding with Michigan. I think they're going to win. I, I don't feel like good as a person about it.
2: <laughs> oh, well, you should feel good as a person, Patrick, you're a good person. No doubt. No, I'm
0: not, I'm not saying I'm a bad person. <laughs> I'm I'm just saying like, I would feel like karma, like better karma if I picked Washington, like that's just, I like I want them to win. I just think Michigan will.
2: You know, I think I think the common pick is Michigan in this game. I, I've seen, I mean, they're favored by four and a half here, which, you know, conveniently enough, I'm pretty sure was the spread in the Washington-Texas game. Washington was able to overcome that there as well. You know what? I'm going to trust in the quarterback. I am. That's why I'm sticking with Washington here. But I completely understand where you're coming from with Michigan. I think top to bottom, they might be better, but I'm, I'm going to trust Washington's pass attack in this one. I really am. Michael Panix is that dude. And he is going to keep jumping off draft boards. And he better put on a show. And I think he will this upcoming Monday.
0: Well, I also saw uh, some sort of stat about Kalen DeBoer's track record as Michigan head coach where.
2: Like 14 and two against top 25 teams or something like that. Yeah, something 14 crazy. and two
0: against top 25 teams. And I don't think he's ever lost a game as an underdog against um against one or he might be like four and one or something.
2: Yeah, man. I mean, they've been battle tested all year. You know, you talked about how good the Pac-12 was. That's why I thought that they had a case for the number one seed. You beat Oregon twice. And they were nearly a double-digit underdog in uh in that Pac-12 championship game. It's the other thing too. I think Washington could hug on to that underdog mentality. People have been uh I think people have been overlooking them for for a while like as much as you can a team that won their conference has been undefeated to this point but they've been underdog they were underdogs in the pac-12 championship they were an underdog in the first round of the college football playoff and they're underdogs again here you know i've learned to trust them by now uh, under huskies the under huskies whatever you want to call them that doesn't work they got that dog <laughs> in them
0: Uh, don't, don't go UGA on me. That's too much. The the AW gives me PTSD. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, no, it's all right. I'm, I'm sticking with Michigan though. I think their defense is going to be able to force one significant turnover in the game. I don't know how or when I just have a sense, just have a sense. And I think their D line is going to, going to make things uncomfortable for Phoenix more so than he's been this year. Probably. I I still think he'll perform well and shine through it. But if you look at, I think through my research of the outstanding performances from college football quarterbacks in the CFP playoffs, he's going to have to have a crazy game against this Michigan team, like 400 plus yards, probably four touchdowns at least at least like that's going to be the expectation almost for them to to win this game. And. I don't know if, I don't know if he's going to be able to, to play at the same level. If he does, then crown Michael Penix, the the King of college football, this dude deserves it. Washington deserves it. They're the best team. 100%. I I still think there's some merit to that argument. That's why I'm kind of hesitant to pick the Wolverines in this battle, but. I like it. I don't think I would take their spread. Like I would take Washington to cover. I would take Michigan just straight up (laughs) because I don't think they win by a touchdown. I think it's a very close game, like within a field goal. Honestly, I don't see it being settled by a score or more unless Michigan really dominates because I don't see Washington. Like I don't see Washington beating them by two scores or more.
2: We'll see here. I, I'm just saying, look for Washington to take the uh take the opening kickoff if they win the coin toss and and try to flex early. We'll see where things go from there. Sad that this is the last college football game of the year.
0: It is a little bit. I'm actually very excited to see more meaningful playoff games next year or bowl games or whatever, because we talked about a little bit earlier, just how bad some of the others were. Like, I'm sorry, I don't really have an interest in in watching like half of a division one roster play at the end of a year where like none of these guys saw meaningful time on the field before it's totally different team out -hmm. there. I don't really care about the reasonings for kids leaving, like with the way the sport is built these days, it's not their fault. There's a transfer portal, right? (laughs) Like by all means, like good for them. Like go out, get your bag, kids, like whatever. If you have a better opportunity to play or like be happy somewhere else, with the rules that they are, I don't see any reason against taking them, even though sometimes there's things definitely where like lack of loyalty is, is um, apparent, but that just gives you more appreciation for the guys that stay for their whole careers too. Right. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping that the playoff thing will incentivize, you would think it would incentivize more kids in playing more games at the end of the year
2: yeah i think i think that we'll be able to get these bowl games um you know the ones that like this year's example of the orange bowl and um the fiesta bowl and you know the ones that were blowouts i think that i think that at least for a time uh this 12 team playoff is, is going to be able to keep those guys uh keep the guys on those rosters the teams that are playing in those games that you know the five through 12s it's going to keep them opting out and I agree that I think that that's going to be good for the sport. Uh, We'll see how long that lasts and if expansion goes from there, but what plenty of that to talk about in the off season, Uh, the transfer portal and, and everything like that. All right. Give me a score prediction. All right. Um, I got Washington 31, Michigan 24 in this one. Um, I got uh the Huskies scoring early. I got them scoring on that opening possession. I think Penix does not quite reach 400 yards, throws for somewhere in the 370 to 380 mark, and he has three touchdowns. 31, 24, Washington.
0: <laughs> okay. I have it as uh <laughs> I have it as a narrow. I want to say I will go Washington 24. Michigan 27.
2: All right. We got our score prediction. Let's see who comes out on top in this one. Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. Is this our pick of the week, too? Nah, nah, nah. I, I don't think either of us are like super confident in it. No, I don't we're know. Not. I don't know if we want to put the money on it yet. I'm excited to see Fun what happens, one. though. Of course. Of course, man. It's the culmination of the season. It's what we've been waiting for. I'm excited. <laughs>
0: yeah. Like, like I said, I want Washington to win it. I just, I just don't, I just don't think they will, but I'll be stoked if they do for sure. All right. Enjoy the game, folks. We've got an NFL show coming later in the week with some fantasy football talk as well, breaking down all the playoff scenarios and whatnot. So enjoy this in the meantime, Paul and I will be back pretty soon right here on the fifth and long podcast.